Hi, and welcome to another episode of Northwest of Five with myself, John Cleary, and Zach Giorgio. And today on the program, we have got Jack Hughes. Uh, Jack is an agile coach um, for all that means, and I think he's going to explain it to us. And uh, we, we've stretched the, the definition of Northwest slightly, haven't we, Jack, for this episode? Ever so slightly. I mean, yeah. technically, I'm from North Wales on the borders of the Northwest. So I'm like yeah. an adopted. Yes, yeah. I suppose. Child of the North. You're northwest of somewhere, right? So yeah. yeah. We didn't say where. We, I think we were nice and open about that. So thank you very much, Jack, for coming show. Jack, do you mind maybe just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and just how you got into what you're doing? Like, what was the route for you? Yeah, no problem. So um, I grew up in North Wales, get called a scouser or a monk at least once a week. Um, I, I joined the Navy at 17. Typical story of someone who goes in the forces really not that academic at the time decided the navy was the best place for me get to see the world and all that exciting stuff love my time there decided to leave um, after just shy of seven years and then sort of fell into traditional project management really there's a company called fdm who used to be based up in manchester and they recognized that there's some transferable skills and the, the, the deal is they give you the um, formal qualifications, if you like, those ticks in the box. You give them two years, and that's your foot in the door on a client site with them. At that point, I decided I wasn't that good of a project manager from a traditional point of view because it was all very command and control, spreadsheets, so on and so forth. So like a lot of people, I found Scrum first, and then it's like the, uh, the gateway, I suppose, into <laughs> to Agile as a whole and then fell down the rabbit hole of agility and agile, and then went on a niche. I wanted to become a scrum master, and that's what I did. Left that company, um, worked for a few other organizations, and then decided to set up Everyday Agile, which is my business. Because, um, well, the, the turning point was I was a permanent member of staff, and I wanted to go on a course, and they said, well, we'll pay for you to go on this course, but if you leave within a year, you're going to have to pay it back. And I thought, well, is that really... Is that really attractive as a, you know, is that this sort, is this the sort of place I want to stay in? So I wanted control of my own development. I'd started posting content on LinkedIn, probably the start of 2017 before LinkedIn was cool. And then it just went from there really. So I've been working in going between organizations for into the third year now. And um, yeah, that's a very high level introduction. Brilliant. Um, and LinkedIn was cool for a while, apparently. Well, is now. Yeah, well, is it now. is now. It's it now. is now, not I, not a couple of years ago. Of the social networks, it's probably the only one I'm on, but um, I don't consider myself very cool. So that was a brilliant introduction, and you've come obviously from the uh, from the forces background. And you're not the first person I've met who has come from the forces background. I don't know if there's any kind of is that a, a, a traditional route to come from that? Do you think, or is that just well, just coincidence? I've met a few people. Probably coincidence. I was a gunner in the navy, so nothing to do with IT to be honest. Yeah. So it was a massive, um, well, it still is a massive learning curve, but from a, a from building high performing teams from that side of things, I think a lot of people who leave the forces have a lot to offer if they have, if they can take themselves away from that military mindset, not totally away because it's still good to have those, you know, foundations of discipline and all those other good attributes, but you can't yeah. go into, you can't go from the Navy in think it's going to be the same culture in the corporate world. So did you fall out of bed then with 
uh, what we're going to call waterfall. You didn't mention the W word. I'll, I'll give I'll grant you that, but you did say traditional project management. Is there, yeah. you see a difference and did you just fall out of bed with it at one point? So like I said, the deal was with this, with FDM is I went on a client site. So I ended up in one of the, one of the bigger banks who are just going through an, an agile transformation now. So in 2015, it definitely wasn't on their radar. So it was very much traditional waterfall project management because I didn't know any better is, is the truth. Cause I had fallen into this new role as a project manager or a, a junior project manager, I suppose it would have been. So yeah, I, I straight away with no background, I could see that there was some inefficiencies because why weren't these people talking to each other? Why have we got a separate QA team who never meet the developers? So if I, I, I started thinking, well, if I'm notice, noticing this, surely other people have who've been doing it for years. And that's where, that's what led me to scrum really to start with and so where have you come you, you said you started with scrum mm. what, what next what did you was it just everything after that the plethora that as you called it a great way drug or was have you moved on sir specifically yeah I, th- I think you have to go back to the foundation so things like extreme programming the real technical practices although i'm never going to claim to be uh, you know, uh, a certified programmer or coder or software engineer, what, whatever they want to call themselves. I think for someone who doesn't have that depth in background, you still have to put yourself in the shoes of the developers and at least have a go at it. So have a, you know, I've, I'm trying to, or have tried in the process of learning Swift, because I think that's, it's not easy, obviously, but it, it's probably a good introductory programming language for someone who, who hasn't, who hasn't done it before. And I think going in as a, again, inverted commas, non-technical person, even though I don't really like that phrase, it gives you a better understanding. You can win the trust of the teams a lot easier if you put yourself in their shoes. Even in our business, you know, I still try and do hands-on billing after I don't know how many years of doing our job because I think ultimately if you're at the coalface, you also understand what goes on and you understand the pain points that they have as well. Um, so that, that's fascinating that you're still doing that and, and you're learning along the way, which is great. For me, what's really interesting, Jack, and what I want to just touch on is, um, again, this waterfall and agile piece, you know. I hear this conversation a gazillion times over, probably more so in the in, in maybe a couple of years ago where people were saying i want to move to agile we're moving to agile we're, we're an agile site and then actually they weren't really an agile site there was waterfall going on in one part agile in another part and, and i suppose the argument is or just trying to understand how agile are businesses now are they really still or is the waterfall process still going on i think they say they're using agile or adopting that those agile values and principles and then they say they're using something like scrum but when you lift the bonnet up and start checking the oil in the water they're still doing big bang releases they're only you know they've got they've got four uh, their release cycle is four times a year and i think that's why frameworks like scrum sometimes get a bad reputation and at the end of the day, Scrum doesn't care, right? It's a framework that was thought up by some people. Scrum doesn't care whether you do it right or you do it wrong because it is just a thing. But the problem becomes when a large organization says, right, we're agile, we're using Scrum. Well, are you really? And it's perfectly okay if you're not, right? It's about establishing a flow of work from one point to another in the most efficient, safe and valuable way possible. 
I don't really care if you're using Scrum, Kanban, um, incorporating DevOps or not. If it's working and it's providing value early and often for the customer, that's what's that. I, I suppose agility is more important than agile. The problem then becomes that the leaders who buy into this stuff don't educate themselves enough about what agile means to them. And that's probably one of the first questions I would ask a leader or an organization when they want to try and influence this stuff. Yeah, so it still comes down to um, actually in in any business, it still comes down to stakeholder engagement, really, in the respect of, yeah, we want to be agile. Do you really want to be agile? And I see it with some of the new online e-commerce businesses. They do seem to be agile. You know, they've they've really, because they've started at a point where they didn't need to do waterfall. They needed to be agile because of the type of business that they were, and they've grown with it. Whereas I still see some of these more, um, I don't mean to be rude to them when I say cumbersome, but, but they're just a bigger machine, aren't they? Ultimately, some of these big businesses that have been inherently waterfall for as long as they've been, and now they want to be agile. But actually, the stakeholder going, no, no, we can't do that. Yeah, yeah, but we can. This is what we want to do. So it's just interesting to to take your take on it. How are they going to? How are they going to do that? How how are those large scale businesses going to be able to shift? I suppose the cost of entry, if you like, is accepting that if you're going to go down the agility route or agile in general, you have to be prepared for it to unearth a lot of your. I'm not going to call them problems. Opportunities within your organization. If you're not prepared to have that mirror held up to you as an organization, do you know what? Don't bother because Agile won't solve the problems. It will sound very good, but unless you're willing to really introspect and look at these things, like, well, why can't we release? Not, I'm not saying that would be like Amazon and release you know, hundreds of times a day, but why can't we release more than four times a year? You know, why haven't we explored the value of having a cross-functional team? Why do our people not feel safe in this working environment? If you're not prepared to look into those and look under those stones, then do you know what? It's, you're probably going to be wasting a lot of your time because the process won't solve the, the internal problems without some deliberate effort. How are they going to get there? I think it's, it, it's, edu- it's education that starts with the people wanting it, right? You can, you can hire a massive consultancy to come in and give you the, the cookie cutter approach. But if you don't understand what that means, and if you're just going, f- if you're sheep dipping people from agile training to scrum training, and if you're telling them this is how they're now going to work instead of inviting them and showing them the benefits, it, it's not going to be sustainable. It's a bit like a diet, right? If you can't see yourself doing it in a year, probably not sustainable and you probably need to look at some other approaches i think i need a different approach then because it's never sustainable my diet (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a brilliant analogy of the diet one and actually something you said um i heard a very similar expression before that agile will shine a light into the you know the darkest corners of your organization and if you're not prepared to do something about what you uncover then there's no point isn't there's no point ticking a box if some some senior level exec has read a white paper or a blog and goes, hey, we need to get on this. My mates over at Organisation X are doing it. You know, we need to be doing it. Um, but I think what what I've noticed is that any new business or any small business is probably doing agile off, you know, off the hoof because that's the way to go. And it works very well. It works particularly well for small teams. I think large organisations have been around longer are 
start up in waterfall because that's all there was and are now some many are trying to make that transition and some you know some are succeeding some are not a thing that's always been pointed out by agile is it doesn't scale i'm not saying i agree with it but that's that's a criticism i've heard before that or it's difficult to scale right because it's all about getting seven eight people in a room getting them all together across functional team it's like well i've got 300 people what do i do now so i guess what what do you say to those people you know what's what happens next so yeah, it's a great point. I think you have to start small. I think that there's loads of frameworks, right? And if you do a bit of digging, you'll you'll hear about things like SAFE, which stands for Scaled Agile Framework. There's Scrum at Scale. There's Large Scale Scrum. Uh, and I think that is part of the problem because there's so much to, to choose from. And we often forget that Agile, four values, 12 principles. If you're making it up, as long as it's adhering to those four values and 12 principles, it doesn't really matter. But the problem is when you look at the picture of, say, scaled agile framework, it gives larger organizations, especially that comfort blanket, because I can then relate. I've been a delivery manager for 25 years in the company. Oh, there's something there called a release train engineer on that picture. I can probably fit into that role quite well. So it ends up being just just um, you put in the tracing paper over the organization and swapping mm. people around. I think scaling also means getting smaller, right? Like toy soldiers, they're to scale, but they're just a smaller version. So descaling and looking at those opportunities is probably the first thing to do. And I don't mean mass redundancy. I just mean, well, do we descale in terms of the technology and the architecture we're using? Do we descale the dependencies? It comes down to that incremental improvements. And I don't think you can take any scaling framework and apply it from day one because people, one, won't understand it, two, won't be ready for it. And three, again, is it sustainable for the product or services you're trying to build? So how do they solve it? Do it at a small scale first and then start adding those layers onto it build on the success i guess of your initial team one get team one going get them kicked off get the process the problem is people don't like that though do they they, they, they want a quick fix and they want it yeah. yesterday but agility takes time i suppose especially if you've got a really old not old but really traditional set in their ways organization like some of the yeah. larger banks are yeah it's really bedded in it's been there for decades and uh, you know everyone's come up to the come up through the ranks of being a maybe a junior developer or junior project manager coming right up to delivery lead and that's all that's what they've you know we delivered hundreds of projects using this it's fine and at the back of their mind and that's that's the, the impression i've got from the organizations i've worked with where digital transformations you know were being proposed or being you know shepherded in that it was like how do we they weren't saying this but it was like how do we get you know how do we make this look like what something we already recognize you know, how do we keep what we've got, but still carry on as we are? And there's, there's two messages normally, isn't there? You've got the yearly message from, that goes, you know, webcast email by the CEO saying, do you know what? We've had a hard year, but these are the numbers. And every, we're not really worried. Everything, everything is okay. So you've got that message there. And then you've got a group of people like me trying to influence change. And the people in the middle are thinking, well, He's telling me, he or she is telling me everything's okay. So why do we need to change? Like, it's really a problem yeah. to solve. Secondly, the old way of scope, time, and cost 
being the ticks in the box for a successful project, although mm. that's true, if no one's using what you're building, is that really a success? Like what, what, what are we measuring against? If it's scope, time and cost, then that is a measure, I suppose. But is it the right one? I'm not sure. So um, I've got another question. Obviously, we're all in um, a similar boat at the moment with remote working and all the rest of it, particularly technology teams who can work remotely. Mm-hmm. But your average Scrum Master and Agile coach's daily toolkit was the post-it note and the whiteboard. How are you personally kind of coping with things now? I think uh, it's been an education in Miro, Mural, Google Jamboards. Um, okay. It, and I'm writing it, these down. It, yeah. Um, <laughs> funretrospectives.com the biggest issue that because the teams are fine they they like that you know we use these things at on a collaboration level all the time even when in the office because there's always someone at home most of the time now anyway um the biggest problem has been getting these organizations to buy into them as well because because of the security uh issues or the 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 risk appetite but if we want to transfer the, the, the positive culture of the office into remote working, then again, I don't want to pick on large organizations too much, but they are the ones who are a bit risk averse. You, we need to give the people the technology and the, the collaboration to, to do that. Mm. Um, that's been the biggest sticking point, really. Yeah. You know, I did a, did a bit of scrum training a couple of weeks ago and the, the individuals couldn't get on YouTube just to watch an introductory to a book called deep work. No, it was just one of those sketchy. This is an introduction. This is what deep work is. And they couldn't get on it. And so I had to then play it through my speakers, although not a massive problem in the long term. you know, it's just not, again, it's not sustainable if you want people to be productive at home. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, if I'm right, I think the sort of Google approach is to bring your own device. Like the security is not baked into each, everybody's machine is baked into the network and the system that's how they work around that problem it's like hey do what you like with your computer because our network's secure i think our the organizations we're talking about don't have that and they're saying we lock down every device you know that's the route in that's our that's our surface area and that's that's how we protect ourselves i can see that point of view that you know they're i said twenty seven thousand and one savvy and, and scared so they're they're trying to protect themselves from that but you're right it's something needs to change do you think jack um probably a question for you as well john do you think that waterfall will disappear eventually in software development or in any project really probably not because waterfall isn't a dirty word probably should have said that a while ago but (laughs) if again i don't know if you you two are probably aware of it but for those who aren't there's something called the stacy matrix and it essentially says if the technology is known and your requirements are set in stone and there's a 99.9% chance they're not going to change, then just do it. Go through that process. The environments we find ourselves in are in that complex domain where things are ever changing. And that's where the issue lies is we try and smash that waterfall process into a complex environment and the outcome is you know, chaos or it doesn't really work. So I don't think it will disappear, but I think people will ask themselves, hopefully ask themselves better questions before going down any route. Yeah. And it might not need to disappear. Yeah, the reason I asked the question, and in fact, uh, uh, wait, John, what do you think? Well, I was going to say two things. One is I I don't think it will because there's something slightly intuitive about it. I know it's it's an odd thing to say after everything, you know, where I stand with agility, but designing something and then building it has a kind of a feel to it that we we understand like i'm not going to go and 
build a house. The classic example, right, build a house, build a bridge, right? And I know we're not in that space, okay? Because, you know, the, the shores are moving and we're in software when we're building bridges. But they're the examples that people use. And sometimes it feels like, okay, let's design this and then plan it out and build it. And so I can see why an element of that will, will always exist. But, um, yeah, I, I guess, I don't, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be just, I'd be interested. no one's going back to waterfall that's that's all i can see like there's companies moving away from it there's companies that are moving away from it less quickly and there's companies starting up who are doing agility and i don't see anyone hard that i've seen going right day one new company let's waterfall the heck out of this um or anyone going do you know what we did well i have seen companies have done scrum and moved back but that's because they've never completed it they've never they've never successfully got over the hump and into flow but I've never seen anyone go, Joe, you know we've got this scrum thing down, we've got agility down, it's all working fine, but I miss the quarterly releases. I want, I want to go back to quarterly releases. Well, I think it's, it, you know, from what I sort of see as well, from a recruitment perspective, it's, it's sort of how it flows down as well. You know, software developers want to work in an agile environment. Testers want to work in an agile environment. Everybody else wants to work in an agile environment. And I think what you, you tend to see is, not in all cases, but in certainly in some cases, when, you, you know, like you say, there's only four releases a year or something along those lines from, from, a, from a waterfall perspective, you tend to find that some of the, the devs in particular want that sort of faster flowing environment environment where it is agile and they are releasing regularly and some probably don't want to um release too regularly but others probably want to do all the time don't they so i think it's it's also the, the way it sort of flows as well not just at the top level of do, do we go waterfall or do we go agile it's sort of what does the what does the attraction strategy mean what does retention of people mean do you know what i mean within those mm. teams will they go and work somewhere else because we're not using agile and we're still waterfall i do i do also think that i've you know i've certainly seen it before where BAs have, have come to me and they're like, one of, you know, the clients said, oh, I really want an Agile BA. And then you find them an Agile BA. And then before you know it, actually what happens is the BA comes back and goes, they're not really Agile. They're doing all this waterfall and stuff like that. So, so it's quite interesting because I think that people do want to go down that Agile way. And I think it's the impact that it has on all the rest of the people within the team, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think companies have to be really careful as well in their job descriptions because one of the places I was with last year, a developer came from somewhere else. I'd worked with this individual. He came in to this large organization and he said, well, on the job description, it was totally different to the reality in terms of the technology they were using. You know, the whole agile piece was missing because they were still going through those large releases. So from a recruitment point of view, you know, you have to be careful because you don't, the worst thing you could, well, not the, not the worst thing, but a, a really detrimental thing to do is to bring someone in, that person then leaves. It doesn't, doesn't take much to, for that reputation, especially among developers to, to put the warning signs of, you know, that they're not really practicing what they're advertising. I can absolutely relate to that. And I think there's elements in what we do, which really sort of um, is the skill in it in, in regards to a job description is a job description, but actually understanding what somebody wants to and not understanding from what somebody wants to do from a technical perspective, but certainly understanding what the role is, is, is really, really important to actually almost dissect that job description when you're talking about it to people. Cause mm. you now I've spoken to loads of clients that, you know, I, I want a scum master or I want an agile coach, but actually they want a, a scum master who is an agile coach. 
Do you, do you know what I mean? Because so so again, it's about it's about breaking it down and, and really understanding. Because then that is about how you talk to a particular candidate, how you're actually talking about the role, what the actual role encompasses. I suppose it's a, it's a really good point. Like, and everyone will may have a different opinion. Now, I think a scrum master and an agile coach are the same thing, and I think it's a a misinterpretation from. There's like this. Um, hierarchy of agile coach than scrum master now i don't believe that because i think a good scrum master will won't forget that they serve the organization as well as the team and the product owner yes an agile coach you know might work with leaders and they may not have a specific team but there's nothing stopping the scrum masters from doing all that stuff as well yeah and i've had it before or oh, your, your cv looks more like a scrum master uh, looks more like a scrum master and i'm like well yeah but also mentions working with leaders at the top of the organization as well. So, yeah. yeah. It's, um... and, you, and when you're when you're a scrum master, you're enforcing or maintaining the rules of scrum, right? And, and the way to do that is often by, you know, coaxing and coaching and mentoring, not, ne- you know, not necessarily by dictating. But, Zach, something I want to come back to, you mentioned before about people coming to you and saying, well, you know, we want to work in an agile organization. I wonder if there's a bias there of people who are looking for a new job. Right. So I've, I've met and worked with people who aren't looking for a new job and don't want to work in agile and are quite happy the way things are and the way they are in their status quo. And they're not on the job market, so they're not coming to you. To be fair, Zach, I guess you meet also you must meet the employers. So they presumably there are people on that side as well. But it must be difficult to hire into a traditional waterfall team. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I don't think I, I, don't, I, I very, very, very rarely get roles that are purely waterfall. You know, uh, maybe it's on more on the PM side, but generally, any of the sort of new age stuff tends to be business analysts, product owners, developers, testers. You know, they all tend to be in that sort of agile way, agile way of working. Even the PM side, but I think PMs do traditionally do sit a lot of the time within the larger scale organizations hence why it probably is more waterfall so i think you know arguably the the roles that i get i can't think of one role that i've ever had that is pure 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 waterfall recently should i say yeah um, it's it's always been you know like we want to become more agile or we are agile and we're moving away from waterfall and we really want to grow it and, and you know that type of thing so yeah in, in answer to the question john i think that it is very much the now and the future is agile from from what i can see hence probably why i asked the question whether you thought waterfall would sort of disappear can just before uh just um pass on to that can i just throw something else in so i don't forget about it yeah, yeah. Uh, one question i'd really be keen to uh, get an answer off both of you again is how many teams do you think a scrum master should look after at any given time because I've heard it before where like, you can't look after more than two teams, you can't look after more than three teams, five teams, really, I can't do that. So just in addition to the other two. So, I'll go first because I think Zach's, I think uh, Jack's probably got the right answer. If there is such <laughs> thing as the right answer, I'm sure there's not. Um, because I've been asked the other question, which is, can a scrum, do you have to be a full-time scrum master, which is basically the inverse of the same question, can you continue to code? And I think it does depend on size of the team for the first, for my question, which is if there's three of you, um, and you are technical, then you can be a scrum master and developer. But if you're eight and you're doing it right, then you're unblocking people. Then I think it's a full-time job for, you know, if there are pure blocks in the way. I think it's possible to do it for two teams. I think it just depends on the organization. If you're 
if you're betting in agile, you're going to have a lot of blockers. I think you're going to reach, you're going to have them daily and a lot of them and they're going to be big. I think if it's, if it's a well-oiled machine, maybe, but yeah, Jack, really keen to hear your take on that, your experience as well. So I think two is probably the, the most before I go down the rabbit hole. I just recorded a video about this today. So one of the most common things when I do a workshop training is, oh, doesn't the scrum master just book the events and facilitate them? And you know what? Someone probably could get away with that for a while. But if they're going back to the agile coach and scrum master thing, if they're going beneath the surface of helping the whole organization um, from a cultural point of view, helping to ship code faster, because at the end of the day, that's, that is what it's about mostly, then I think having more than two teams, it's possible but the benefits that you're going to get from an intrinsically motivated scrum master and agile coach are going to diminish because they are going to get bogged down in those ad- with the admin of just being in the events, which I know for all the agile anoraks listening, the scrum master doesn't have to be there for all of the events, but the reality is in large organizations, they are early on. Um, so if you've got three, four, five teams, you are going to spend a lot of the time in facilitation mode if you've got two teams, you can manage that as well as helping unblock those larger organizational opportunities, if you like. What's your experience, Zach? Have you had the no, I think it's, I think horror it's, stories? I want to hear them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fascinating one because, you know, obviously at the end of the day, we're not techie, are we, as recruiters? You know, anyone that professes to be a, a I'm a technical recruiter, I'm a specialist. Well, you don't do the job every single day, so how can you be? Um, but we tend to sort of learn that sort of thing as we go up go along and what i found is too is is probably exactly what i hear as well you know when i speak to scrum masters about jobs and i say you know they've, they've got six teams at the moment they've got one scrum master that are a bit like well how many teams do you want me to look after because i don't think it's possible to look after more than that and two's the the, the general answer that i tend to get but again i think what's interesting is what you said before jack about the uh, i think an agile coach and a scrum master is the same again that's what i tend to get but it's very much very it's, it becomes very important for me to explain the role correctly in the respect of they are one and the same in, in what they do like you've explained however i think that some clients want the scrum master to be doing the stand-ups every single day and being the scrum master and others want them to actually understand why um uh, teams aren't hitting their sprints or you know so doing this sort of uh, diagnostics at the top end rather than being the scrum master at, not the bottom end but you know what i mean in, in that respect so what i, I tend to I, well, what i really love when i get a role is and, and one particular client that i work with you know that they do this all the time and they have a, a scrum master who's an agile coach who basically does all that who parachutes into teams when things aren't going well and acts as the scrum master while the rest of the teams come up to well the team comes up to speed. But what I also like about that model, in fact, I love about that model is the fact that they've built so much contingency within their team because the developer is doing the standups or the product owner is doing the standups. So they've got this perfect model where actually the scrum master can be the agile coach or he can be the scrum master, and I think that gives a real good blend because also it makes the developers and the, and the business analysts or the product owners become very entrenched within agile rather than just doing it because that's what they're told to do yeah and that's the whole point right of scrum specifically is to help that team become self-managing so arguably some people would say that the scrum master's role is to make themselves redundant in the end 
and then support as needed so they can then either go and help another team set up or help the, those organizational layers and in, in, in blocking some of the difficulties they're having um sounds like a good place to be to be fair sounds like a good client to have well just you mentioned clients um one thing i would, obviously you're very active on linkedin and that's um uh, I said just before we, we started recording, I feel like I already knew you, Zach. We actually don't know each other, but I've seen, seen you on LinkedIn quite a lot and I messaged you because I was impressed with your content. So, yeah, just can we just talk a little bit about your LinkedIn and your strategy on there? And Because it seems to be quite uh, generous in terms of what you give out in terms of content and you're also quite active on there. What's your kind of approach? Good question. I don't spend enough time thinking about it, to be honest. <laughs> okay. I'm quite, yeah, I'm, a, I'm quite a meat and potatoes sort of guy in that sense. I started posting in regards to leaving the armed forces, probably, like I said, towards the back end of 2016, first part of 2017. And then it just sort of evolved. There's no, um, there's no tactic to it. I think of something, I put it in my notes, I put it through my own filter of, would I read that? And then I, I post it. I suppose from a business point of view, that's helped because I give, not give, but I potentially provide a lot of free insight or advice. But again, the the advice is as good as it applies to your context. I don't think I try and, I've never aimed to post for everyone because I'm not trying to sell to everyone. I'm quite self-aware in regards that not everyone is going to like me, and but I'm not trying to sell to them. So I can only speak my own sort of truth. So yeah, I think of something, write it in my notes, I post it or record it. And that's genuinely how, how it sort of happened. And the old being consistent, posting once a day over four years is probably going to get some traction in the end. Like death by a thousand yeah. cuts is the is the only strategy I've, I've had, to be honest. Well, that's really good. Your content's really good. I've seen some of your videos. They, they tend to pop up because I think I must interact with them and LinkedIn knows all about that kind of stuff anyway. But yeah, and some of the, you know, you've edited them down as well. They're really quite professional looking and I do watch them. I tend to watch them to the end. So it's obviously doing something right. It's certainly hitting a chord with me. And I'll even occasionally write stuff down going, yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good way of phrasing that so that I can pass that on to someone I'm working with. Or when I'm in a conversation with someone, that's a good way of pitching that particular you know, idea or thought. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. I don't really, um, to be honest, I don't really get that much feedback. So I'm... Just, yeah, that's, uh, very kind of you to say. I've got one final question, actually, Jack, for, for me anyway, and that is, you mentioned armed forces. There's obviously a, a great deal of training that goes into discipline to a degree. Certainly if you're in the armed forces, I'm sure you have to be extremely well disciplined. Um, and I've seen it over a number of years, people moving from the armed forces into more traditional jobs later on in life or whenever that may be and so on. Do you think that it gives you... Uh, an, an advantage or not maybe not an advantage but from an IT perspective you know anybody that's looking to bring somebody on board who comes from that type of background that hasn't done IT arguably or has done IT do you think that's something that you would advocate yes but I don't think just because you have been in the armed forces that it automatically means you're going to be a good fit Okay. And what do I mean by that? Some individuals would have been in, and it all depends on rank. It depends on time served. It depends on what job you've done. But depending on the force will depend on the sort of culture you've come from. And I, I, I'm going to be very generic here, right? So bear with me. Like the RAF, for example, from what I know, seem to be 
a lot more collaborative, laid back, not as hierarchical as maybe the Royal Navy, who are, you know, the senior service. I still think there's a bit of, um, I don't know, class difference between officers and non-officers, for example. So I think you have to ask the right questions to make sure that a person leaving the armed forces is going to fit into your culture. If they are very command and control, which again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it might not go down well with a group of developers who are being told they're self-organizing or self-managing. So I think from a, a generic point of view, I don't think you'll go far wrong with someone leaving the armed forces. They just require a bit more one-to-one support and mentoring to make sure they transition into the sort of person you want in your company. Does that make sense? And I think actually, the, well, I mean, obviously it's completely obvious really, but the fit of the person into your organization really matters. And I think some companies have overlooked that. I've seen it in technical organizations where they hire people more or less based on their technical ability and very little else. And there isn't a good fit. You know, they might be brilliant, but they don't fit that culture or that or the culture that that business is trying to create. And that's a real shame because it can actually be, it can undo a lot, a lot of good work or cause a lot of harm. So I think it's arguably said that you potentially should recruit people with slightly less skills, but the right cultural fit, the more skills and, 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 and the wrong cultural fit. Because if they're extremely technical and brilliant and brilliant at what they do, but they're right, not the right type of personality, um, but you really need somebody to fulfill a job for you because you're desperately needing to fulfill a project and get a contractor, you know, because they're going to do less damage than um, bringing in a permanent person who basically will sit there and upset the apple cart. And before you know it, it's like you say, it's, it, it's almost like when that person leaves, it's like assessing the damage after the storm, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know if we've got... Away. I don't know if we've got time for this, but my only question to you, probably more for you, Zach, was the whole IR35 and do you think that will kill off the contractor market and what, 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 what's your experience from the recruitment side? Well, you know, I, I mean, personally, I don't look after that within our business and Tim looks after that within our business. So he's got a far better idea with that particular you know, IR35 and all the new legislation. Tim is our expert internally. So for me to talk too much about that I, I can't comment but what I can say That's is that over the years they've made different changes to IR35 for as long as I can remember from as long as I've been doing the job and um, on each occasion um, it has been looked at and it's been worked through and there's been changes made to make sure that the contracting market carries on so I don't personally I mean I know this is a big one this time um, but I don't personally believe that it will be the death of contracts at all. If anything, if it were to be, I would be turning around and advising the government to make a very, very big U-turn because the way tech is going, even more so probably after this pandemic, and the need for tech people within the UK, and, you know, it's, I mean, we focus on Manchester in the Northwest predominantly, but I, I've got loads of friends at you know, talk about tech people across the UK. The demand is sky high for tech. We're just nowhere near the talent that we've got. Mm -hmm. And if they want to continually to innovate and they want to have tech clubs and they want to be this, you know, Manchester being the, the number one place in, in the UK or number two or wherever it is, and, you know, the UK becoming this sort of centre of excellence for tech, if they don't have contractors doing it, 
they've not got enough permanent people to do it. And, you know, with the Brexit changes and, and understanding about people coming to the UK, what we're going to do, we're going to have to offshore our jobs, you know, and, and that software houses in, 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 in Poland and India and Ukraine and all these other places in the world take jobs that could be UK jobs. So, so hopefully that answers the question because there's just not enough talent. We have to have to make sure that we've got a, a supposed robust, probably not the right word, but, you know, a, a UK-based contract workforce that allows us to keep the work here. Because you know what happens. The minute you offshore something to Ukraine or, or, or India or, or wherever for that matter, you know, it might be a lot cheaper, but over time you lose a little bit of control over it, you start passing other stuff. And it's not because you don't want to do it yourself, because I know most business owners that I speak to want to have it internally themselves. They just either can't afford it or can't find the talent. So I hope that answers the question. As yeah, best. yeah, I think, yeah, we could talk about it all day, couldn't we? Yeah, I just wanted, from a recruiter's point of view, that was... Yeah. Yeah. We are nearly out of time, but I want to ask me one more question of you, Jack, before we finish off. So um, what are you up to at the moment and what, what's the future for Jack? Are you staying as coach or is it, you know, continue as is or have you got big plans you, like, that you can share? So just trying to build very... You know, it's just it's just me. I've got a few associates who who do some training for me and, and things like that. Got a couple of clients who are taking the majority of my time. I would like, and like that's why I asked the IL thirty five question. I think a lot of things will either come to fruition after April in terms of companies engaging with smaller consultancies like mine. I've always been of the mindset that I I don't want to be a contractor. I want to be a business. So I try and have that B2B relationship as often as I can. And hopefully that will just continue to grow. Yeah, no no massive plans apart from just incrementally building on, on what I've done and learning along the way, really. Everyday Agile will, will continue. I suppose I need to be better at making sure I'm not front and center because I'm only one person. So I need to get more clients to employ more people so they can take that. So Everyday Agile doesn't become... The Jack Show is just a, a business on its own, on its own two feet, I suppose. Fantastic, Jack Hughes. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been really brilliant talking to you. Everything agile and uh, a bit LinkedIn as well. And thank you very much, Jack, and um, as ever, and Denisa for helping us out and recording and doing all the hard work. If you want to get in touch with anyone on the show, please contact us via um, LinkedIn, and our email address is also available in the links on various podcast networks. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jack. Cheers, guys.